Amen. Well, as Matt mentioned, Tom is away, and so this morning we'll be continuing in our study of John, picking up in chapter 18 where we left off last week. And so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. But there are three main characters in this chapter. They're Jesus, of course, and Judas who betrays him, and Peter who denies him. So hang on to that, that there are three characters in this story, but primarily we're going to be speaking about the character of Peter. And so by way of background on Peter, let me just tell you a little bit about him. Uh, his name originally was Simon, and at one point Jesus actually changes his name to Peter. Uh, so sometimes, don't let it be confusing to you when you read, you may read of him being referred to as Simon, other times as Peter, and other times as Simon Peter, and so just be aware that that's the same guy. Uh, he was a fisherman by trade, and we know that he was a Galilean, and Galileans had a personality unto themselves. They were a passionate type. They had a distinct accent, and so you could tell them apart even when they were speaking. They were energetic and independent. They had this frank disposition that sometimes got them in trouble. And in that sense, Peter is a Galilean through and through. Because Peter, like other passionate personalities you may know, is either really on or really off, depending on what moment you catch him in. We can describe him in perhaps a far more redemptive way as one who is constantly failing, but whom Christ is constantly redeeming. It's Peter who, on the boat with the other disciples, sees what they think to be a ghost, and it's Jesus walking on the water. And it's Peter who cries out, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he does. It's this ridiculous story. I mean, it's the impossible thing that Peter is doing, and it's all because the Lord Jesus commanded him to do it. That word command, it's a, it's an empowerment. It's more than just to tell him to do something. It's the Lord empowered him to come and do the impossible. But Peter failed. He took his eyes off of Jesus. He became aware of the wind and the waves and began sinking. And so his failure then is restored by Jesus. He reaches down and Jesus takes him by the hand and restores him. It's the same Peter who last week, wanting to defend the mission of Jesus, does so by cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant. A little bit of a fail there. Well, Jesus restores the man's ear and restores Peter by way of a rebuke, teaching him to put his mind on the things of God and not merely on the things of the world. And it's interesting also that Peter receives one of Jesus' most scathing rebukes and also one of Jesus' most redemptive promises. It's to Peter that Jesus says, on this rock, on this Petros, Peter, I will build my church. That's a redemptive promise. But then he also receives one of Jesus' most scathing rebukes when he says, get behind me, Satan. He's really on. He's really off. He's constantly failing. Jesus is constantly restoring him. And in the days of Jesus' arrest, leading up to those days, Jesus had been rehearsing with the disciples exactly how it was that he was going to establish his kingdom. And he tells them that it's going to come by way of his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and oh, by the way, you disciples who swear on your life to follow me will all fall away. Not one of you will be faithful to me to the end. Well, Peter, being true to his personality, stands up. He's incredulous and says, I maybe so, Lord, for the other disciples. In Matthew 26, it's hilarious. He says, maybe these other disciples will deny you, but I will never, de- ne- never deny you. 
And he swears on his life, even if I have to die with you, Lord, I will not deny you. And the very next scene, Jesus has told him, actually, Peter, before the rooster crows, this very evening you will deny me three times. And then the very next scene is the Garden of Gethsemane where we left off last week, where Jesus is betrayed. But before Judas arrives with his band of soldiers, Matthew tells us that Jesus became deeply sorrowful in the garden. And withdrawing to pray, Jesus leaves his disciples to watch with him and pray. Jesus goes off alone and he prays, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And having spent an hour agonizing in prayer, Returning to hear his disciples doing the same, instead of the sound of prayers he hears. His disciples are sleeping, including Peter, the one who just swore his life in allegiance to Christ. And Jesus says to him, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And there we have our first lesson in this morning's passage. It's a prequel to John 18, I understand that, but if we miss this lesson, we'll also miss the lesson of Peter's denials. See, Peter's about to fall hard. He's about to deny Christ, and that is tragic, and it is shocking, but that moment of weakness is only a direct consequence of this failure in the garden to watch and pray. And so before we learn anything from the denials themselves, we have to first understand what permitted him to enter into that temptation to begin with. In the same way, when you and I fail to watch and pray, we fall into temptation. To watch, it means to be awake and engaged in the mission of Christ, awake and engaged in his purposes for you. Well, how do you know that except through the word of God? He's revealed to you his passions, his heart, his mind in the word of God. So we watch, we are awake and engaged with that, but we also pray, and that is to align our will to his. So he reveals to us his will, his purposes for us in his word, and we come alongside as willing parties, aligning our will, our passions, our mind to his by way of prayer. So it's a twofold command, watch and pray, and Well, the Lord gives us this command because he knows that if we fail to do either of those things, watch and pray, then our loyalties will be divided between what I want and what the Lord wants, and we'll fall into temptation. And so the lesson is watch and pray. I think Psalm 119.11 captures it well. The psalmist writes, I have stored up your word in my heart. The idea is in the day of abundance, when there's lots of grain to be had, okay? Picture Egypt, Joseph, remember? In the day of abundance, there's a plenty, a plentiful supply of your word. And so in that time, I'm storing up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you in the day of famine is the idea. Store up the word, personal daily worship, Time in the word, not just giving it a cursory glance, but committing it to our hearts and to our memories. That sounds expensive. And let's face it, time is not a currency we come by easily. So I guess we could make that priority decision that it's too costly to store up the word, but 
I think the caution of Scripture would be then don't be surprised when you fall on the day of temptation. Peter failed to watch and pray, and so he's unprepared for the trial that's coming and will fall into temptation now, as we'll see as we pick up our story in John chapter 18, beginning in verse 12. John writes, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So remember that there was a cohort of Roman officers. Remember they are described as 200 to 600 armed Roman soldiers with also the Jewish officials coming down after Jesus. And they see him coming from a long way off. And it says they came and arrested Jesus and bound him. And then in verse 13, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So Annas is this patriarch of a high priestly family, and so it's quite possible that while Caiaphas was officially the high priest in that time, Annas being the reputable uh, tried and true patriarch, perhaps was still considered as an authority of some sort, and so they bring him first to Annas, but in any case, he's going to take a, take a shot at Jesus before handing him off to more official proceedings. But then John does something interesting in the story. He gets us as far as Jesus standing on trial before Annas, and then it's like he breaks in the plot and cuts scene now back to Peter. And I think that he does that very intentionally, inviting a comparison here between the trial that Jesus stands for truth and the trial that Peter is about to enter into defending a lie. So in verse 15, we read Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And so knowing what comes next, you have to pause right there, and you have to just give a sympathetic nod to Peter, because at least he's in this scene at all. Think about it. Just moments ago, Jesus was in the garden with all of his disciples, who all of them saw him arrested, bound, and led away in his betrayal. Now, where is everybody else? Now we read that just Peter and some other guy, who's not named for us, are walking with Jesus, and Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke each include the detail of what happened with the other disciples. It says they ran in retreat. They fled. So Peter and this other disciple who's not named for us risked his life and reputation to follow after Jesus this far. And then he picks up in verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple, the other guy who's not named, was known to the high priest, he entered it with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. Now, I had a, a friend once say, you know, when you read a lot, these authors become more than authors on a shelf. They're actually sort of friends that you fellowship with. When you have an author that you love, you kind of get in their head a little bit and you start to understand the way they think. And if you've been tracking with us over the last 29 messages in this series, believe it or not, which amounts to 203 days if you've been engaged in your daily personal worship, then you ought to come to know the heart of John and the way that he writes and that word door ought to just jump right off the page at you. It's not a meaningless commentary on where Peter is standing, although I will admit that helps us visualize the scene. More importantly, though, John is setting the stage for Peter's massive failure. He stands outside the door, which we've studied and talked about at length, that the door represents that which separates destruction and death from deliverance and life. And Jesus is that door whom Peter is now apart from. And so he's setting the stage for a massive failure. And it says that the other disciple, 
who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the implication is that while Peter's feet stepped inside, his heart remained at the door. His loyalties remain divided. He failed to watch and pray. His loyalties are divided, and we know that is the case because of what happens next. Says the servant girl at the door before agreeing to let Peter in, says to him, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, hang on a minute. That's a leading question if I've ever heard one. The servant girl who is barring his entrance phrases her question in such a way as to expect a no for an answer. She's just given him an open door, both, both literally and figuratively, and all he has to do is walk through it. And let's not forget for a moment that Peter has just hacked a guy's ear off and been rebuked for it. So I imagine he's just a little raw. He's maybe a little reluctant to just stir up any more trouble. And so she opens the door, you're not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he just walks right through. He says, I'm not. Listen, I don't want any trouble. Just let me in. Now, the servants and officers, you know, the guys who had just arrested, bound, and led Jesus to answer before the high priest, had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. And where was Jesus' loyal unto death disciple, Peter? Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. See, there's no question that faith would have answered yes at the door. Yes, I am this man's disciple, even at the cost and the risk of being put on the witness stand with Christ. There's no question that faith would have preferred to be in the cold on trial with Jesus than to be warm without him. But in a moment of weakness, Peter's persevering heart grows weary. In light of Jesus' trial and the suffering and death he faced, Peter takes his eyes off the promise of resurrection for just a moment, and his heart retreats to something that is momentary, that will warm him in the here and now. See, Jesus has promised that he'll suffer, die, and rise again. And if you're a believer in Christ, that's a promise to you as well, that you will suffer in this life and die, but that you will rise again. But how quick we are to deny him and his resurrection promise when the suffer and die part that precedes it is our daily reality. How quick we are in those seasons of suffering and when our faith is on trial to retreat to momentary comforts. Listen, God, that may be great in the future to get your resurrection power, but right now I need something to keep me warm at night. And we take upon ourselves a sort of deliverance, a sort of false comfort. Some months ago, as many of you know and have been so faithful to pray, uh, my wife and I uh, had our second son, Jethro, um, back in April. And it was a season of time where I saw this at play, where the promises of God that felt so eternal and distant in the future were a little bit dissatisfying. In my flesh, I sort of wanted, instead of hearing about the resurrection, I wanted to hear how he was going to help me now. (laughs) You know? God, heal my son. And then I'd hear the promise of the Lord, and it is a promise of the Lord, so I don't want to diminish it, but hear, hear how my flesh receives. The promise of the Lord is that he will ultimately heal my son, perhaps in that last day. I want you to know that sometimes dissatisfying, that produces in the moment zero comfort to somebody who's suffering, at least in the immediate sense. 
And his promise of resurrection becomes something you want to you distance yourself from if it means that you're going to have to pass through suffering and death to get there. And here's the point. How often did my heart want to retreat from prayer, from his promise, from the true comfort of his Holy Spirit? And how often did I want to retreat to my own fires of my own invention, if you will? Find whatever will keep me warm in the here and now, make me feel better, make me feel like I'm in control again or whatever. But at some point, we, we began to feel faith spring up in us. And I'm not going to say that there was just a day when the light switch flipped on and all of a sudden from then on we were on eagle's wings soaring above it. You know, we're still going through it, guys. We're, we're still going through it, but... Uh, but 97 days in the hospital, for all the moments of despair and faithlessness where I wanted to walk away and retreat to fires of other comforts, the Lord caused faith to spring up for moments. You know, it wasn't like suddenly it was changed. It was like I'd get an hour where I felt confident in the Lord's deliverance. And then another doctor would come in, every ologist in the book told us that our son was going to die in different ways, and so that's great. Uh, another, you know, we'd get around to, like, really great news, you know, and then it'd come with a backhand, and we'd be back where we were. And, but faith was springing up, and it was that faith that at some point caused us, not perfectly, and again, not finally, but to accept His purposes. No, 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 actually, I take that back, okay? Hear this. Faith is more than acceptance of God's purposes. It's becoming a willing party in carrying out the purposes of His kingdom here in this earth. Acceptance has this notion to it that's like, okay, God, you're the boss. If you're not going to answer my prayers, then that's not, that's not faith. Faith chooses not to warm itself by the fires of our own invention by our own resolve, our own willpower, our own perseverance, but it becomes a willing party in carrying out whatever purpose it is that the Lord has. And faith gives that to us. And I've never been more convinced that that's a gift of the Lord because it certainly wasn't just springing up out of my subconscious. That's a gift of the Lord. So which is better? To sustain a lie, which you know deep down is really a lie, these things that in moment feel comforting and warming, to sustain that lie and choose that moment of reprieve that will ultimately betray you or willingly walk in the frankly sometimes offensive promises of God. In my case, that God may not heal the way I want Him to, but He will heal completely in the end, which really, though, is more comforting. Well, if Peter's example holds any lesson for us, it's first of all to be prepared for that day of trial because one day your faith will be on trial. Watch and pray, Jesus warns us. And secondly, when that day of trial comes, wait on the Lord's deliverance, not denying him in exchange for the warmth of lesser comforts. So there's Peter, his allegiance on trial, protecting himself with lies. But meanwhile, John takes us back to Jesus, who's standing on trial for truth before us. We pick it up in verse 19, the high priest, meaning us, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Well, just a second, what's Peter out 
in the courtyard doing at this very moment. He's whispering in the secret. Jesus goes on to say, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. He's saying, listen, I don't know what kind of dirt you're trying to dig up here, but I've not not gone to any great pains to hide my intentions. In fact, I've been very public about my mission here. I've taught in the synagogues. I've been, I've, I've had no hidden conspiracy, no hidden motive, but that's not how his word is received by this high priest because it tells us that when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? See, there was nothing disrespectful or wrong about what Jesus said. It was the truth. And I think we can all agree, and I hope so, that we can all agree that truth is a good thing, but that does not, therefore, make truth always agreeable and safe. Sometimes it's dangerous. It's disturbing sometimes to us, which is how this high priest received Jesus' words. And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? He's calling him to a fair trial, which this is clearly not a fair trial, but more than that, he's... He's calling on us to present a reasonable case against truth. And I think in doing so, Jesus models for us a great evangelism. You know, there's a sense in which he lets truth stand on its own two legs, and the bearer of truth does not have to bludgeon people with it, does not have to be belligerent and ugly. In fact, the beauty of truth is that it's got a self-evident power of persuasion because it's written on the hearts of man, Romans 1 tells us, such that any who seek to suppress it have to go to great lengths, not just to suppress a logic, but to suppress the, in fact, inner testimony of their own soul. Truth is powerful, and he lets it speak. Annas, apparently having no further questions for Jesus, then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, and we'll read about that trial before Caiaphas next week. But first, John cuts scene back to Peter's trial and writes, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. There he is. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it. Now for the second time. See, it's easy to defend and continue a lie once it's begun. It's like a snowball. It's just starting to get away from him now. He has to defend his lie or make a big mess of things. So he just says, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. Actually, Matthew is far more emphatic in his details here. He says that in that third denial, Peter began swearing and calling a curse down on himself, saying, I do not know the man, and at once a rooster crowed. The sun came up, I think, is the implication. Why is that relevant? Well, the rooster crows in the, at dawn, the sun, the emblem of the resurrection. Now, the thing that Peter had denied in preference for temporary fire has come up. And Luke tells us that in that very moment, Peter remembered the word of the Lord that he would deny him, and he went out and, quote, wept bitterly, went out and wept bitterly. Now, there's another disciple who went out and wept bitterly. There's another disciple who betrayed Jesus and went out and wept bitterly. Do you know who it is? It was Judas. It was Judas, the third character in this story. Remember, there are three characters, Jesus, Judas, and Peter, and John is very intentionally drawing a comparison also between these two men, Judas and Peter. 
Think about it for a moment. Each of these guys are one of the 12 disciples. Jesus rebukes Peter, calling him Satan, okay? And then he calls Judas a son of perdition. Peter stands before the priests and officers and denies Jesus and their company. Well, Judas stands in the company of the priests and officers and betrays Jesus. After denying Jesus, Peter went out and wept bitterly. After betraying Jesus, Judas went out and wept bitterly. Yet we're told that Peter is restored while Judas is condemned. Why? Peter becomes the first among apostles, the rock on whom Christ would build his church, but Judas, it says, hangs himself. And in rather graphic language, the scriptures describe someone who died a cursed death. He hung on a tree, and then I suppose the noose breaking, it's described as him falling headlong and his guts and intestines spewing out. It's graphic. It's vile. So, This begs the question, if these guys are so alike, then what makes the difference between the one who fails and is restored and the one who has failed and condemned? And you have to admit, on its face, these guys are a lot alike. Well, the difference is true faith versus a false faith. The difference is a genuine faith and something that looks a lot like faith but really is rooted in man's self-determination to follow a man. True and genuine faith, that is your grounds for salvation, is a gift graciously given to you in Jesus, not an exercise of your iron will. See, Judas's quote, faith, could acknowledge Jesus, could even make him look like one of the 12 disciples, and even allow him and inspire him to follow Jesus to a great human extent. But the moment his self-determination fell apart, so did his salvation, his hope of salvation fell apart when his self-determination did. Peter, on the other hand, had a faith that remained intact even after many similar failures. Peter's passions betray him constantly, so he's not rooted his faith in that. He hasn't rooted his faith in his resolve or his perseverance either because his resolve falters and his perseverance grows weary. I mean, he's asleep in the garden for crying out loud. He's warming himself by a fire. He's constantly failing, so why then does Judas act in much the same way And Peter, as Peter, but Peter's faith remains? It's because the Lord Jesus, though Peter failed constantly, is constantly restoring Peter. On account of the fact that Peter had a true faith, not rooted in his own self-determination that fails, but in him whose work is already accomplished and will therefore never fail. Faith is the gift of Jesus, and a gift by definition is something which you do not possess until it's given to you. And it's a gift, by the way, that can't be revoked once it's yours. That ought to be comforting words for us that we cannot, however much we fail, fall away from our Savior if, in fact, He has redeemed us. Now, Luke 22 gives a profound insight into the difference between Judas and Peter. He writes, or he says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Now, pause a second. That's an odd statement. Satan demanded to have you. Do you know that earlier in this very chapter of Luke, it tells us that Judas had Satan enter into him. 
Before he sought an occasion to betray Jesus, Satan entered into Judas and apparently in some kind of cosmic conversation, if you will, God and Satan talk about these two men. And he says, Satan demanded to have you also in the same way of, as Judas, but Simon, he sought to, sought to have you that you might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. If you're in Christ, he prays a very similar prayer for you. It's the message of a couple Sundays ago, the high priestly prayer as it's called, John 17, that Jesus is your, is your high priest. There's one true high priest in this story. The one who goes between us and God. And he commands, he empowers and guarantees your faith because it's rooted not in your own self-determination, which will falter, but it's rooted in Jesus Christ. So you and I, before the promise of resurrection is fulfilled in us, and it is a promise which we ought to have hope and comfort in, but before that resurrection promise is fulfilled, understand that it's by way of suffering and death that we achieve. And it is, in fact, not our achievement, but the gift of Christ. And in those seasons when we're tempted and when our faith is on trial, We're going to want to retreat to momentary pleasures and comforts that will ultimately betray us. And so we should wait on the Lord's better deliverance. And often we fail to follow Christ in that way. But if you've been given a true and genuine saving faith, then understand that ultimately he's purchased you, purchased your faith in a way that will not fail. And so just as it's said of Peter, though he's constantly failing, So is Jesus constantly restoring him? That's also your story if you're in Christ. Oh, we stumble and we fall and we attempt great things, but the Lord is constantly restoring and he is the one on whom we stand. And so in conclusion, if there's a few takeaways, first, I think the lesson is to store up the word of God. Because that day your faith is on trial is coming. And so the Lord Jesus would say to you, watch and pray. When the trial does come, wait on the Lord's deliverance because his is better by far, if for no other reason than the fact that his is eternal and breeds life. Yours, however, will, by definition, if it's rooted in your life, will end and betray you the day that your life ends. And if you do have a genuine saving faith that's a gift from Christ, then hear the voice of your Savior commanding you to come after him on the water. Meaning to follow him, it is equally impossible to follow after Christ as it is to walk on water if in fact he has not empowered you in his spirit to do so. And he calls to you. And the difference between a Judas and a Peter is that saving faith. And so... With that in mind, could we go before the Lord in prayer and ask that he would seal his word on our hearts and let whatever nonsense came out of my mouth fall away? And let's pray that he would do that.